0: ready. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is the first Monday of the month, which means it's time for McDougal Monday, and Dr. John McDougal today will be talking about livers and liver disease and what diet might have to do with it. Please welcome him to the show. Nice to see you, Dr. McDougal, as always.
1: it's just so good to be back with your, <laughs> your, your very enthusiastic audience and you too, AJ. I look oh, we, forward to the next month. We love your presentations. And in case
0: you guys don't know, every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Dr. McDougal's YouTube channel, he does a live Q&A with questions you sent in. And last night, I thought was especially good when you were talking about the history of cancer.
1: You know, I was going to start out because I think this is so important. I was gonna start out by going over some of this discussion I did last night, and then we'll talk about liver afterwards. Because I think it's really important that we we start getting the job done. I mean, we start changing the way medicine is practiced. This is just terrible. So uh, those of you who are listening, if you listen carefully to the first uh, 20, 30 minutes of the presentation I'm gonna give, if you are a patient, if, if you feel like uh, you're not involved, Uh, If you feel like you're not getting your questions answered or not getting answered honestly, or maybe there's another part of the story you should know, then please pay attention and get involved because you're being mistreated. It's called malpractice. I don't know any other way to say it, but it's, it's just plain and simple malpractice. And, you know, if we're dealing with your TV set or even your car, if it broke down, hey, we could buy another one. But we're dealing with you and your spouses and your children, your parents. Don't, don't you expect a, a level of honesty here that exceeds repairing your car or your television set? I do. I do. And I, I want to I bring you up to date on some things that we've been talking about for years. In fact, I, I started writing about this in 1984. Oh, probably earlier than that. Now, McDougall's Medicine, A Challenging Second Opinion, I wrote, published in 1984. You know, there's so little that's changed since then, except I've kept it up to date. You know, people ask me sometimes, why, why don't you rewrite your books? Excuse me, I wrote them right the first time. You know, there's some room for updating, and I'm going to do that for you. I used to do it in the in the newsletters that I put out, but I stopped writing them. But what I do now is I do videos, and I do presentations, and I try and bring you up to date on the scientific literature, but you know, probably you need to go back and look at some of my previous videos. Like we're gonna be talking about heart disease and cancer uh, during this first section. Well, you know, if you're you're kind of at a loss as to what I'm talking about, you know, go to YouTube, the YouTube channel and put in McDougall and heart disease or McDougall and cancer and get up to speed and then listen to this presentation again that I'm gonna give you right now because I'm building on stuff I've been working on for 40 years and I'm not exaggerating. I'm I'm not, I'm not, you know, I have no vested interest except for the fact that, you know, I'm a doctor and uh, my loyalty is to patients. And many of you are my patients and some of you are indirectly my patients. At least I hope you bring me into your consulting room with your physician and you discuss the material that I've shared with you and, and ask them, hey, is this, is this true? You know, if you don't get thrown out of the person's office within seven minutes, well, that's what you're allowed as a seven minute office visit. Then, you know, maybe you'll have a chance to talk to this physician, this healthcare provider. And maybe like Chef AJ will tell you sometimes, and my daughter Heather always tells me, dad, there's a lot of really great doctors out there. You know, you're, you're always kind of badmouthing your colleagues. Well, you know, in general, I'm covering it like it is. But yeah, there are some exceptions. There are some physicians out there, nurses, dieticians, et cetera, that have the same attitude I do. And that is that you are the one that counts. And you need to know the truth. You know, not, not people's opinions. You need to know the facts. And so what I'd like to do with you just for this moment, and I'll keep doing this as we give presentations along the way, because I'd like to bring you up to date on diabetes, on autoimmune diseases, uh, women's problems, and so on. And, you know, when research comes out, I, I, I just want to add on to what I've done already, because like I said, I did it right the first time. So let, let's, let's talk about some of the things that concern me that have come up all over the last year or two that I think you should know about. And if it doesn't make a lot of sense to you, you know, go back and look at the, uh,
2: the basic presentations I gave you to you on, well, in this case on heart disease and on cancer. Look at the studies. See if we can get this in line here. All right, you tell me what
1: we're, we're all set here. We've got a, a good picture there, Chef AJ. Perfect. To get you involved, I've got I've got to get you, you're doing your homework, all right? I've got to get you to look at the basic research and decide whether or not I'm exaggerating. I mean, how could Dr. McDougall be right and everybody else be wrong? You know, how could that be? Well, you can find out, you can challenge me. I encourage you to do it. In fact, I insist you do it. I'm gonna ask you for each and one of the discussions I bring up to look up the basic papers and read them, particularly if this concerns you. Read the basic papers, the scientific papers, and decide whether or not I'm telling you the truth. How do you do that? How do you look up the basic scientific research? Well, I've shown you and I'll show you again. You know, you go to PubMed, the National Library of Medicine, and you look up the title of the article or the subject you're interested in, or you look up the reference that I provide in the bottom right-hand corner of the slides. And what you do when you look up this, the, the presentations on on uh, PubMed, the National Library of Medicine, is they'll give you um, citations. They'll tell you how to look things up. Well, what you look up is you look up something called the DOI. It's right there. It's under, let's look under Cite. DOI. You look up Digital Object Identifier, DOI, and you copy that number. And then you go to this website that you see here, SciHub. Sci-Hub is a renegade website that provides for you the scientific research. I mean, the basic papers are right there. And pretty much I can can find pretty much everything I talk about by just going to Sci-Hub. But also, you know, I would say about half of the papers available are open access. So they don't even try and disguise them behind copyrights. The publisher is going to tell you, look, this is copyrighted information. And to go to Sci-Hub is cheating. It's a lot of money well-deserved. Excuse me. The research papers were done uh, courtesy of your tax dollars. They're done courtesy of the money you spend on buying their products. know, this is your research. You paid for it. I don't feel bad in any way for you having access to it, even if they say it's copyrighted. You know? Anyway, you know how to do it. You find the D O I number. You put it in Sci Hub, S C I H U B. Okay. And uh, right now it's it's housed in Russia. You can see the uh you can see the identifier sci.h-u-b.ru. It was held in different countries. They'll move it around, but it's available for you. Look it up. Take the papers into your
2: physician, your healthcare provider, and say, look. Look what I learned. Is this true? Come on now. Is this true?
1: All right. Let's see if we can get moving along here. We're going to talk about some updates on topics that we've been over before. You know you know this because if you went through the, oh, if you just listened to me on Chef AJ, uh, the presentations I've given, they're all on YouTube. They're all free. And if you've taken the 12-day program, boy, we've given you a the basic understanding and nice thing about you being involved in 12 day program is you're a McDougall patient. Yes, you are. That's the only way you become a McDougall patient. You either have gone to my St. Helena program, St. Helena hospital, which I, I did for 16 years. That's one of the best hospitals in California. I was there for 16 years. If you were a patient there, then you're, you're my patient for a lifetime. Or, or if you go to the resort program, I ran in Santa Rosa, California for 18 years. You're a McDougal patient, and, and if you attend the telemedicine program, uh, which we've been running for the last three years, twelve days, twelve days of your life, you're a McDougal patient for basically life. Not only do we give you the twelve days, we schedule weekly appointments and then monthly appointments with you. Hey, you know our goal is to get the job done. You know the the, the one night stands are over, folks. I don't do that anymore. A seven minute office visit is very unsatisfying not just for you, but for me. So if you really would like to get involved in your care, you know, you say, I've had it, you know, it's too painful. It's too painful to suffer the diseases, to suffer the the, uh, the unsightliness. You know, I used, to, I used to really like what I saw in the mirror. You say to yourself, well, you can have it back. You can regain your lost health and appearances. The body heals, but you gotta stop damaging it with the food, yeah. All right, let's see if we can get on to some topics here of interest. All right, let's talk about lying to the public. All right, lying to the public. When it comes to heart disease, I gave you the information. I showed you all of the studies that were done to date on doing PCI, uh, percutaneous coronary intervention, or angioplasty.
2: I showed you all the research up until what I'm going to
1: show you right now. And also on open heart surgery, I showed you all the research. And what the research said, you know, the European study, the veteran study, the CAS study. That was the coronary artery surgery study. They all say the same thing. Open heart surgery does not save lives. Maybe in the very, very, very sick it does. But not for most people who have open heart surgery. And when it comes to angioplasty, you know, whether you, uh, you know, whatever study you look at, they also have the same results. There's no survival benefit to doing these kinds of interventions. But there's a lot of reason to do them. I mean, heart bypass surgery, open heart surgery, they rip your chest open.
2: You know, they put you on the heart-lung machine. Uh, That's uh, 70 to $200,000 if all goes well.
1: And an angioplasty is like 30 to $100,000 if all goes well. And it doesn't always all go well. So there's tremendous motivation to keep you in the business.
2: Here it is. It's money. All right, so let's let's talk about um, let's let's talk about what's been
1: been done in terms of advancement of knowledge in heart disease. And what we're talking about is uh, coronary artery disease, atherosclerosis, plugging of the arteries of the heart, so that you don't get enough blood supply to the heart. Let me bring you up to date. But first you understand, without argument, heart surgery does not save lives.
2: And maybe in the very, very sick. We'll see. But but that's not what you're told. You know, you're told you'd be
1: stupid not to have this surgery. Okay, doc. If that's the case, show me the evidence. Show me the research.
2: I've, I've, I've made available for you all the research that was done up until what I'm gonna show you right today. Hey. It's nothing more important than you and your family. And the consequences can be huge.
1: It's just not a matter of wasting thirty dollars to $200,000 or more. It's a matter of
2: having your, your mind work, of risking death. Yeah, this is important. Well worth a little trouble on your part. Okay,
1: malpractice continues. Unchecked heart surgery. Well, <clears throat> heart surgery is done on hard fibrous plaques. You see, this is an angiogram, and you see the arrows pointing here. They're pointing to hard,
2: fibrous, non-lethal scars. These are stable. They don't rupture. But that's what doctors operate on, is they
1: operate on these scars. They bypass these scars, which basically never
2: kill. But what kills instead are, uh, are plaques that rupture. What happens is
1: the inside of your arteries gets damaged by the foods that you eat. Maybe tobacco makes an additional damage factor here, but the foods damage the inside line of the arteries. And you see a thin layer here called the intima. One cell thick, that's all it is, is one cell thick. And the injury occurs. Uh, Globs of fat, slivers of cholesterol, get under this thin skin. And just like a sliver stuck in your hand, a sliver of wood the body reacts, it tries to isolate that sliver. It it tries to uh, remove that sliver, just like it tries to remove the slivers of cholesterol and globs of fat in your artery walls. It does this by infiltrating the injured area with an inflammatory reaction with white blood cells. And what you end up with is you end up with a a pustule, just like you would if you stuck a sliver when you're in 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 your hand. You get redness and swelling and heat and pain. And then if you left it in there, you wouldn't because you have nerves in your hand. You have no nerves in your heart artery. to tell you the same things going on or similar.
2: If you left the sliver wood in there, eventually pus cells would, would surround it. You get a pustule. And uh, you may at that
1: stage decide to rupture the pustule and take the sliver out. You may or may not. If you left the sliver in there, it would eventually be covered with scar tissue. And that's what the lesions are I showed you in the last slide, they're, they're scar tissue. But what happens and what gives you a heart attack is this, let's follow the arteries progression down. You get the development of a pustule, sore, and the, the sore gets bigger and uh, the outer layer of the sore becomes thin and you develop a fissure and uh, out of the fissure comes spurting inner contents of this pustule. Yeah, the, what happens is the pustule pops like a temple rupture on a teenager's face and it causes the blood to clot. And it's the blood clot that kills the brain tissue or the heart tissue or other tissues in the body. It's not the hard fibers, plaques, it's a sudden rupture of a plaque. Okay, but doctors don't, operate on the killing part of the disease the rupture that forms a blood clot which results in a coronary artery thrombosis why because they
2: have no technique they they have no treatment for that so what they do instead is they operate on the old scars all right so
1: now you got some basic understanding of what goes on with this disease let's take a look at some of the recent studies done here 2009 that's one of the latest studies, a randomized trial of therapies for people who are really sick. They've got type two diabetes, they're probably they're overweight for almost for sure. You've got high cholesterol, they've been shoveled on that rich American diet into their artery walls for
2: years. These are, these are, the, the, are the, the most sick of all. And what you see is you see uh, you see no survival benefit. Look at the charts. Survival
1: of revascularization, in other words, doing angioplasty versus medical therapy, 88.3
2: versus 87.8, not significant. Anyway, uh, here's another study you want to confront your doctors with where they looked at coronary intervention.
1: Overall, there was no significant difference in the rates of death or major cardiac events between patients undergoing prompt revascularization or those undergoing medical therapy or between strategies where, you know, part of the strategy in this study was to intensively treat diabetics. So you made your hemoglobin A1C close to normal. But well, we've already shown that doesn't work. I went over all that with you in the diabetes section. In fact, that kind of aggressive therapy kills. That's what all the studies say, but we we'll won't touch on that today. All right, so uh, a, more, a more recent study, this was done in 2022, okay? October of 2022, uh, just published, New England Journal of Medicine, the best of the best. Now here again, they look at the very sickest people, the ones that have such damage to their heart muscle that half the heart muscle's dead. You'd expect if, if, if the procedure works at all, you'd expect to see the benefits and those who are very ill, Okay, well, it took them a long time to do, to find these 700 people that they were studied who were very ill. Uh, they were on average uh, age 70 or older. They found 700 patients. And among those with severe ischemic left ventricular dysfunction who received optical medical therapy, revascularization uh, by PCI did not result in a lower death rate from any
2: cause or hospitalization for heart failure. In other words, the surgery didn't cause them to live any longer. But you
1: know why? It's because they operate on hard fibers, plaques. They don't do anything with the killing part of the disease. All right. So I hope you have that established well in your mind that this expensive procedure, which you risk your life having done, plain and simple doesn't work. There are, you know, I'll go over 20,
2: 30 studies with you or your doctor and there'd be no argument here. You know, the only argument would be, is, uh, ma'am, sir,
1: go find another doctor. I'm done with you. Yeah, you might lose a few physicians by asking questions, but hey, all right. So let's say, let's except in the most severely ill, bypass surgery, or any type of open heart surgery or angioplasty does not stabilize. Well, an angioplasty, plain and simple, doesn't stabilize. Maybe open heart surgery in the most severely ill would a tiny bit. Uh, time okay anyway here's randomized control trials a couple of them there for you huh all right so if heart surgery doesn't save lives then why would you do it are there legitimate reasons for doing it yes there are if you have such severe closure of your heart arteries that you can't get around you can't do the things you want to do You know, you can't prepare your own meals, you can't go windsurfing, you can't ride your motorcycle, whatever is incapacitated to you. Heart surgery can relieve chest pain, but you should only look into it if it's incapacitated chest pain. In other words, if it's something you don't want to do again, it's not incapacitated. I mean, if it's a matter of climbing up to the top of a mountain that's 10,000 feet high, you might say to yourself, I really don't want to go up there anymore. But if it was something that's near and dear, say to me, like windsurfing across the pond at 34 miles an hour, I might decide that that's incapacitated and have something done. What would I have done? Well, according to standard teachings that were taught to me 50 years ago and are taught to doctors today, is you should reserve surgery for people who have incapacitated chest pain unrelieved by good medical therapy. Now, good medical therapy is supposed to be drugs that relieve chest pain, like nitroglycerin, calcium channel blockers, beta blockers. Then you can relieve the chest pain. Then you don't need the heart
2: surgery. Why? Because it doesn't save lives. All right. Uh, Let me explain to you how you do relieve
1: chest pain with really good medical therapy. Here's a picture of the blood flow. You see the blood flow here this rapid blood flow through the heart arteries. you Imagine going to your brain, good blood flow, and then you eat fat. And what happens is the fat coats the blood cells and they stick together in clumps. And you see this dramatic reduction in circulation here right before your eyes. The circulation stops. A dramatic decrease in blood flow to the heart muscle or to the brain. The studies show that you drop the amount of oxygen in the blood between 5 and 15%
2: after one single high fat meal. And this sludging lasts for about 10 hours. So wouldn't it be nice to relieve chest pain by stopping the sludging and improve
1: the amount of oxygen in your blood? Don't you think that would be a good thing to try? Well, here's uh, some research done and I, I want you again, I want you to look this up, okay? I've given you the reference in the bottom right-hand corner. Here's some of the studies. I'll show you the rest of them in just a minute. This is a study done by uh, by Mike Friedman. God managed to know. Uh, he was a famous type A, type B personality person. Uh, Mike Friedman, Meyer Friedman, whatever, uh, he did experience, experiments along with Peter Kuo and a guy named Williams. And you'll read about these people because you're going to read about all these studies. They were done in the 60s, 70s, and finished up in the 80s. Now, this right here represents a change of circulation that occurred in a person. This was a, a 40-year-old fireman who had no apparent, just an average American. You know, the usual high-fat, high-cholesterol stuff. And uh, what they did is they took uh, the, a microscope and set it up over the conjunctiva of the eye the whites of the eye, where you can see the blood vessels. You know, you look in the mirror in the morning, you see these blood vessels. Well, that's what they're looking at. And then they fed this man a diet that contained 67% of their calories as fat. One meal. What, What did that meal consist of? Well, two strips of bacon, or excuse me, two eggs, four strips of bacon, milk, cream, bread, and two pats of butter. One meal. And you see the dramatic reduction of circulation that occurs in the right-hand picture. Same area of the eye, vessels have disappeared. Oxygen contents drops about five to 15%.
2: It's the lack of oxygen to the heart muscle that causes the pain. Okay. Doesn't this seem to lend itself to a good way of treating people who have heart disease? I mean, the surgery
1: doesn't work, I just showed you. The drugs will relieve chest pain, but eh, minor, as as far as the benefits go, compared to what was done by Peter Quo and his associates. This was back in 1955, it was published, and you're gonna look it up. In the Journal of the American Medical Association, what he did is he took people with narrowed heart arteries that were getting chest pain. He took 14 of these people. And in his selected population of 14 people, Uh, excuse me, of of 14 people, six of them developed chest pain after meals. They developed 14 episodes of chest pain after they ate in these six participants. All right. So what, what they did is if you look on the chart on the right, is they look at the turbidity of the blood, how thick and creamy it looks. And creamy means you have high triglycerides and a lot of fat in the blood. That fat that coats the blood cells, like I showed you before, that compromises circulation. All right, here's here's an individual here, and you see his, his uh, 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 they call it lactesilates, or l- 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 it's the, the creaminess of the blood. You see, it, or triglycerides, you can think about that. You can see after he eats, you know, he doesn't have any chest pain. And then here in about two and a half, three hours, you see the X is there. He has four episodes of severe chest pain. It occurs about three, four, five hours after that one single meal. So so what if you stop doing this? What if you stop feeding a high fat diet to somebody who has narrowed heart arteries? You get rid of the indication for doing heart surgery? Probably, you know, let's not even guess how many people, but you'd save a lot of lives, wouldn't you? Sure you would, sure you would. What they say in here is postprandial lipemia. You know, that's the fat in the blood, okay? You know, that's the fat when you stick the tube of blood on the counter. And this layer of fat forms like, like when you stick a pot of chicken soup in the refrigerator. You look back a couple hours later, there's this layer of fat on top. That's what we're talking about. All right, post, post postprandial After you eat, lipemia may exert a deleterious effect on the myocardium. A low-fat diet may well be useful in the management of patients with angina pectoris, in other words, chest pain, as a measure to help prevent their pain.
2: And by the way, the
1: diet that stops the chest pain is the same diet that reverses the
2: underlying pathology. Neat, huh? All right, here, here are the studies. I, I put them up here for you. Inquisitive
1: medical students, uh, patients, or medical doctors, or cardiologists,
2: or heart surgeons, or whoever you may be, here's the research, look it up. But it's been forgotten. Even in the face
1: that, you know, tens of millions of doctors
2: they do 100,000
1: bypass operations a year, or more than that, about 200,000 a year in the United States. About about 500,000 open-heart surgeries and over
2: 100,000 angioplasties a year. And they don't save lives. They're, They're done for chest pain, unrelieved
1: by good medical therapy, incapacity in chest pain. You did not give
2: your patients good medical therapy if you didn't change their diet. That's malpractice, in my opinion. Now, there is a circumstance, and I want to tell you this little caveat here, because it's important,
1: is it takes a while after the pimple pops and the blood starts to clot before it becomes irreversible. If you have severe chest pain and you can get to the hospital within, certainly within six hours, probably within 90 minutes, you can get up to the cath lab and you can have the cardiologist drip blood clot dissolving medication on that blood
2: clot, it'll preserve heart muscle. It may keep you alive longer, but the intervention has to be applied
1: within 90 to 120 minutes after it starts. After that, the clots organized, the heart muscles dead. The heart surgery couldn't help. So if you have sudden chest pain, hey, get to the hospital really quick but most of you don't go to the cardiologist for that reason. You have chronic coronary artery disease, which clearly, clearly, without any question, survival is not improved by doing angioplasty or open-heart surgery, except in the Mary Bay, maybe with a few very sick people. All right, uh, the final study done, that, and there are no more researches done. I mean, this is, this is passe, this has been forgotten. This doesn't fit into the financial statement of keeping the keeping the medical businesses healthy. But let me tell you about the last study done. This is done by a professional uh, friend of mine, uh, Dr. Dinornish. Uh, we've been we've, we've been stomping the bookstores together for the last uh, forty years. I remember when I would follow him on a book tour, trying to sell books. Uh, you know, there was Dr. Ornish's books out there and my books out there, and I turned his face in and mine face out. But he still sold a lot more books than I did. I think maybe not, maybe not. Anyway, you know, Dr. Dean Ornation. And he did a, a 1983 study on people who had severe coronary artery disease. And within three weeks, he got a 91% reduction in chest pain episodes by the same diet that I use, that he's been using, that should be used, et cetera. They're not gonna do any more studies, ladies and gentlemen. There's no reason to. All right, so there, there's there's the there's the lying to the public when it comes to heart disease, and they're still lying. They're not going to stop. You've got to prepare yourself as a consumer. Now let's talk about the cancer business a little bit because you know that's one. Even even my colleagues are afraid to challenge the oncologists over. You know there, there are a couple of professions, and, and both of them I, I would apply this statement:
2: the emperor wears no clothes. You see, if you're emperor, you can tell people to shut up, don't look, you know, don't believe what you see, because they are the most
1: vulnerable to being caught for lying. Cardiologists and oncologists are because they tell us, they tell the biggest fat lies of anybody. I just showed you what the cardiologist and the heart surgeons is doing. Let me show you what the oncologists, the people who deal with cancer, are
2: doing. Not that they don't have well-meaning intentions, but you're being hurt. Okay, Uh, colonoscopy is the standard, it's the gold standard. In
1: fact, if you try and get a sigmoidoscopy, which I do recommend, you'll be denied. We say, we don't do this. It would be malpractice, they say, to just examine the last two feet of the colon. We gotta examine the whole six or eight feet of the colon. You know, they say it would be similar to just doing a mammogram on one breast to just do a sigmoid exam as opposed to a colonoscopy. Well, we can go over the mammogram stuff at another time, and I can tell you, you know, that's another lie sold to the public. But let, let's stick with, with colonoscopy here for a minute. Uh, here, here's, here's
2: the reason it's so, it's so popular. Cost, over $3,000 for a colonoscopy. Done at a surgical center or a
1: hospital. It requires anesthesia. The complication rate is not too high, but it's important if you happen to be the one that suffers the complications. That about seven percent of people who have polyps removed have serious complications. About seven percent. Uh, when it comes to one of the most uh, troublesome complications, and that's the perforation of the colon, that occurs in about one in two thousand. And about half the people who have a perforation of the colon die. But you're asked to have this potentially deadly procedure done, whereas sigmoids, it's done in an office, no anesthesia, virtually no complications. And and the results when you do a sigmoid as far as survival are as good, if not better. I can argue they're better than when you do the colonoscopy procedure. Okay, this is a malpractice that continues to date sold to the public, you, you'd be stupid not to get your call in full exam and you're told. All right, Well, I have to establish something here first for you is that when you do studies, what you do is you set them up so that they're randomized control trials. That's how you determine whether something works or not. That's the gold, that is the gold standard is to do an experiment where you have a big group of people, you divide them into two similar groups. The control group and the intervention group. Okay, in this particular uh, screen, you're looking at uh, the screen group, are those who get the mammography or the colonoscopy, et cetera, versus those who don't, or at any or get a, le- a lower frequency. If this procedure really works, then at the end of the study, we should see more people alive in those who have the intervention
2: than in the control group. And we don't, we don't. It's not a matter of finding tumors earlier. You know, you you still die the same day, you just found them earlier.
1: You know, if you're not looking, you find it say three years before you die. If you're looking intensively, you might find them 10 years before you died. Well, it just means you knew you were sick longer, that's all. You still died the same day. What you need to see is in a randomized control trial, when you apply what you believe to be true, you need to see more
2: people alive who undergo the intervention. And it's highly questionable whether any of the screening
1: procedures done today show this kind of benefit. Certainly not a benefit you want to buy if you really understood what's going on. All right. I have to teach in the national history, just like I had to explain to you about heart disease. I've got to teach you the natural history of cancer. And once you know this, then everything makes sense. So please pay attention. A a single breast contains 100 billion cells. So two breasts, you've got 200 billion cells. A single prostate contains 100 billion cells. Let me just try and consider how many cells that is. Well, cancer starts as a single cell that stops obeying the rules. Always one cell leads the way. This cell stops obeying the rules. And one of the rules is you can't go dividing anytime you want. You you can divide if you're growing or if say you have an injury to repair the wound, you can divide. Otherwise you can't divide anytime you want. Otherwise you'll become a misshapen lump in an hour or two hours or a few hours. Okay, so a cell gets injured and decides it's not going to obey the rules. It's going to divide its own free will, not like wildfire. The average doubling time for a solid tumor is every 100 days. That's every three and a half months. So one cell in the breast or one cell in the prostate becomes cancerous, and it starts dividing. So 100 days later, you've got two cells. 100 days later, or three and a half months later, you've got uh, four cells. And then you've got eight, 16, et cetera. You've had cancer for a year, and you've got a tumor mass that consists of 12
2: cells. Amongst 100 billion, you can't find those. It's undetectable by any means. The, the divisions continue. And by the way, you know, many cancers that are
1: said to be cancers really don't manifest themselves this way, but there are many who do too. So let's continue with the divisions. Uh, every hundred days, finally you're at two years, you've got over a hundred cells, still can't find it. Divisions continue, you've got a tumor mass the size of a period on a paper, size of a lead tip of a pencil. It contains a million cells. It's been growing for a,
2: six years. Six years, and it's still not detectable by any means that we have available.
1: Okay, so let's get it to the detectable stage. Divisions continue, and finally, you're
2: 10 years of doubling. You now have a billion cells in your tumor mass
1: that is the size of an eraser of a pencil, uh, one centimeter. It's now detectable. You can feel it. A mammogram may find it. The PSA starts to become elevated for prostate cancer. It's a 10-year-old disease. This is not early detection. This is late detection. And if it's truly cancer, in a lot of a lot of situations, it's not.
2: It would have never affected you. But it's truly cancer. It's spread to the liver, to the bones, to the brain, the cattle. Are already out of the barn before you close the
1: door. How in the world would any intervention matter at this stage,
2: particularly local interventions like surgery or radiation? Do you understand what I'm telling you? Do you understand
1: that you're looking at a disease that's, you know, six, 10, 20 years old? You know, on mammograms, mammograms, are the average The average time of doubling before they're detectable is 14 to 17 years of doubling. The reason is is mammograms detect slower-growing tumors. Now, let me tell you something here. Right now is that the average is every 100 days for some people, for some tumors, they double more rapidly, like every 25 days. That's not good. But whereas for for other tumors, they'll double uh, not every 100 days, but say every 300 days. That's good. You know, say you have breast or colon or prostate or, or you know, lung cancer or brain cancer. You, you just want to delay your time of death. We're all going to die, folks. So you want to slow that tumor down. You want to stop feeding it the things that cause these tumors. You want to enhance your immune system so you are on the winning side of this battle. Okay, now understanding this, you will now be able to understand why early detection is really late detection.
2: Remember, you're not going to find it on average until it's 10 years old in terms of doubling. It's a billion cells. Then you can find it. That's early detection. As far as treatment goes, you have to understand that if it's truly cancer,
1: and I have to tell you, many people, in fact, probably Ten times as many people are overdiagnosed as are truly diagnosed with a cancer. In
2: other words, they told they have cancer and they really don't have anything that'll trouble them in their lifetime. Anyway, uh, you'll understand why there are treatment failures. And we're going to talk about both early detection failures and treatment failures here. You're being lied to. Uh, this is out of John Hopkins. Uh, this is their discussion of how a colon cancer
1: develops. Just to show you, I'm on the same page with everybody else. And so will you be if you start studying this a little bit. Okay. Uh, people on the Western diet, somewhere between 20, 22 and 58% of them have precancerous polyps. They don't know it from eating the Western diet. These cancerous polyps, precancerous polyps, uh, and colon cancer don't exist in populations that use starch based diet. This is a disease only in Western living. It's from poisoning the colon with bad food. All right, so once you damage the cells in the colon, what happens is they they respond by proliferating. That's what smooth muscle cells do. They proliferate. And so you see here on the left-hand side, you see some hyperproliferation. to try and cover up the injury. And and this hyperproliferation, it gets worse as time goes on. And these little lumps of tissue become bigger and bigger until... They're finally big enough to call them a polyp. They're about uh, maybe, maybe a centimeter in size, yeah. And then and you see the divisions. Uh, they're they're a precancerous polyp, and then finally they're uh, a cancer and they're able to grow inside uh, through, through, through the, uh, the tumor walls, the cell walls into the bloodstream and spread throughout the rest of the body. It takes, depending upon which research you look at, between 5 and 20 years for this to happen I think more fairly it takes 15 years before you go from a normal colon tissue to a cancer takes 15 years and it takes another 15 to kill you
2: you will be 90 years old before they die of this disease on average unless screening works, unless colonoscopy works. All right, Uh, Journal
1: of American Medical Association Internal Medicine love this journal. They often have a uh, article called less is more. In other words, guys, girls, stop over treating your patients. And uh, what they point out in 2016 is there's no randomized clinical trial or high-quality evidence showing that colonoscopy reduces colorectal cancer mortality. But that isn't even o- overall mortality, which is really the key factor. It, it really, is this going to save your life? Are, are you going to have more people alive
2: in the ski, screen group than in the control group? It's way you can tell. Well... <laughs> It's gotten to the point where you're considered a second class citizen if you don't follow your doctor's
1: advice. In fact, you should be ashamed of yourself.
2: You should feel guilty if you don't get a colonoscopy done. Embarrassment can't kill, but colon cancer can get a colonoscopy.
1: This is is a billboard. There's no better way to get a colonoscopy.
2: One way do not enter. Cover your butt. Get it. This is every place. You'd be stupid not to get a colonoscopy done, wouldn't you? Well, when this study came out, which we're going to talk about in just a minute, the study came out in October of 2022. The
1: only randomized control trial ever done on colonoscopy. I'm going to show you in just a minute. Some of the uh, the media got it right. You know, like uh, for example in. Uh, the news stations, NBC News, they said, colonoscopies may not be as effective as thought, study suggests. Doctors disagree.
2: Why do they disagree? Uh, Why would they disagree with the data, with the science? You know why?
1: How about nature? Controversies over colonoscopy for colon cancer uh, screening. They're controversies because, because the truth is different than the sales pitch, that's
2: why. All right, here's the one you take to your relatives, your well-meaning friends, and maybe even to your attorney, maybe. Okay, first, first randomized trial ever done. And I'm gonna divert for a minute after I get done telling you about this. I hope I remember to do that.
1: The first randomized trial ever done, it was a trial and it was done in, in Europe, Poland, Norway, Sweden got involved in this trial, and uh, what they tried to do is they took a, a control group, which got you know casual colonoscopy examinations, and a, a intensive
2: study group that got you know frequent colonoscopies. They had intensive colonoscopy done by experts. Look at the chart. Look at the chart. cumulative risk of death the invited group who had the colonoscopies versus the usual group.
1: In other words, screened versus
2: control. And what they show,
1: well, you know, if you can't read the chart there, look at the bottom left-hand corner, died from any
2: cause. Those who underwent colonoscopy for 10 years, 11.03% of them died. Those who didn't, who were in the usual, the casual,
1: and by the way, in Europe, colonoscopies are not recommended for their population. In Canada, in Canada, in 2016, they told their citizens to not get a colonoscopy. So these people in the usual care group, they weren't getting colonoscopies. The intensive care group, they were. And what was their death rate? Usual care 11.04 percent. In other words,
2: what is it? 001 yeah, percent. and and it was. It was in favor of those who didn't get colonoscopies. I'm reading that, right? Invite a group. Yeah, no, nah, I think it's backwards. 0.1%, that's it. But you better get your colonoscopy done or feel bad about it. I mean, there's $3,000 per invention at stake here. Well, do I recommend a colonoscopy? No, not at all. Science shows it doesn't work. What I recommend for colon cancer screening, I recommend uh, between the ages of uh, 60 and 75,
1: that you check your stool for blood or for genetic material. Just check a stool,
2: you're non-invasive. You just you know, rub a little stool on a stick and or get a sigmoid done, one sigmoid,
1: that's it. If you're, if you're fully covered by any, anybody's uh, assessment, you're fully covered.
2: But you try and get a sigmoid done in your town, I guarantee you, they they won't do it until you show them this study. Copy it. I showed you how to get it. Copy it. Take it into your gastroenterologist's office. Let them sweat and squirm and tell you why this isn't true. If they try, you can always give them my email address and try and convince me it's not true. All right. Uh, what I wanted to say to you about this randomized control trial and the next one that follows is
1: uh, uh, my, my colleagues, cardiologists, uh, uh, oncologists, cancer specialists, heart specialists, et cetera, they see they say it would be
2: it would be malpractice to not treat somebody or to not do these tests. Now, how could you possibly even suggest it?
1: And that's the reason there are no randomized control trials done on treating lung cancer or uterine cancer is because my colleagues knew the natural history of cancer and how it grew and how you couldn't find it until it had been growing for 10 years. And by that time, it was too late and treatments couldn't possibly work. They knew that or should have. So what they've done for the last 50 years, I've been in this business for over 50 years. They've done hundreds of thousands of these tests and treatments. If they had any inclination that they could show by a properly done study that these were to the advantage of a patient, don't you think they'd have done it? Then they wouldn't have had to to take and lie to the patient, embarrass you,
2: make you feel guilty to get you involved in the business. Anyway, let's go on and talk to you about about early detection it's late detection let's talk about treatments
1: same thing same thing i'm talking about this is this is malpractice but let's go over it anyway let's talk about treating breast cancer for my whole career you now 50 plus years certainly 47 past years
2: i've recommended that if a woman has a lump she has it removed with clear margins so Stick the lump out. Pretty pretty much non-deforming, depending upon the size of the breast and size of the
1: tumor. Nothing more. Not not an examination of their lymph nodes
2: under their arm. No, nope, don't do that. Not 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 a mastectomy. No, nope, don't do that. I haven't recommended that at all.
1: And and there's actually a fraction of our, our community out there, the ones that that aren't general surgeons that don't do mastectomies, don't make their living,
2: send their kids to school based on tuition paid for by, you know, operating, amputating breasts. There's a fraction of my colleagues
1: who are more progressive who say, you don't have to do this mutilating surgery. You don't have to take a woman's breast off. You know, when I first started, I, I even before I went to, medical school. I was a surgical nurse and I've been in, on hundreds of these operations. But back when I first started, we used to take the breast, the underlying muscles, and all the lymph nodes on the side. But before I started practice, back at the turn of the century, they used to take the arm also on the affected side of a woman who had breast cancer. All right. So we realized, we started realizing that we don't have to be that aggressive. I'll show you why we realized this. Because of Bernard Fisher and his study started in 1970s. I'll show you. Your doctors know this or should know this. Anyway, the the, the standard of practice is this. If you don't have your entire breast removed, which is, you know, it has to be done sometimes, but, you know, most of the time it can be avoided. That, you know, if you're going to get a lumpectomy, you must get an addition of radiation. And I've been told because you'll live longer. And that's what the studies say, but they don't say that. I've had arguments with uh, medical students, with fellow doctors, who tell me, you know, this is malpractice for you to not give this radiation to women who have a who have a lumpectomy, just, just the lump removed. But I say, look, radiation causes a leathery breast. If you do it on the left side, uh, where the heart is, you double the risk of dying of heart
2: disease. It suppresses the immune system, and it's a bit costly. Radiation therapy, thirteen thousand dollars. Anyways, lump back to me, sir. The radiation costs nothing when I when I have it done. In other words, I don't recommend radiation. All right, so. Um, here is a, a study on, on men. Now, I bring
1: this out because I wanna make a statement for you before I get too far into this. I want you to know that still today in the United States of America, males dominate the business. As the, as the caregivers, it's mostly males still. That, that's being fixed by, uh, by admitting a lot of young women or older women to medical school these days. So it's kind of being being evened out. But but traditionally, through my entire career,
2: it's been a male-dominated medical business that takes care of women. This is sexism that's going on here. Why do I say that? Because we've we've studied prostate cancer in men. We've studied the effect
1: of treating men by removing their entire prostate or by radiating their prostate,
2: or by doing nothing. It's called watchful waiting. So we've given our male counterparts a real
1: advantage when it comes to them. We're not gonna let us guys be mistreated by girls, (laughs) you know, whatever. And so we started studies. Uh, This is uh, 15 years, it was just published. Published in 2023, in April of this year showing that there's no difference in survival, whether you have the prostate removed or even more aggressive surgery,
2: which you can hardly believe there's more aggressive, but there is, or radiation, or doing nothing, nothing. So have we evaluated the effects on women of,
1: well, doing nothing? I I would say you should have the lump removed, yeah. How about adding radiation, which I guarantee you, your doctor will insist
2: that you have not just electricity, but the addition of radiation. And then you say, based on what evidence, doctor?
1: Because you've done the research. You've looked up the studies. The Right in the bottom right-hand corner, you go into the National Library of Medicine. You've looked it up. You've got the DOI number. You put it into Sci-Hub, and you've got the study right there. So you're prepared for the doctor when the doctor says, uh, you'd be crazy, ma'am, not having the radiation done. It'll come back and kill you. But how about men who get prostate? By the way, prostate cancer is analogous to breast cancer in women. Yeah, basically the same disease. Uh, same causes, same natural history, same failure of treatment, same. Okay. But we're giving advantage to men. I have to point that out because, well, just because... <laughs> All right, let's take a look at uh, the research done on women and the addition of radiation. Remember, we'll let men go without any uh, more aggressive therapy, but how about women? Well, uh, uh, Bernard Fisher, uh, he was a big, big, big uh, researcher uh, during my years of education, Bernard Fisher. He did uh, the classic study, which started in the 70s and was finished up in uh, in
2: 2002 after studying women for 25 years. Take a look at the chart. Take a look at the chart. Overall survival. Look at look at it. look look at it. If you take the whole breast off, okay, that's the squares. You, you do a lumpectomy only, that, that's the triangles that are open. Or you do a lumpectomy plus radiation, that's the triangles that are closed. It looks the same to me. How about to you? Does it look the same to you?
1: There's no difference in survival in any of the three groups, just like in men.
2: But I assure you, you go to the doctor and you have a lump. You're not going to get away with a simple lumpectomy, much less have the doctor discuss with you the importance of eating well. Okay. All right, old research, you know, this has probably
1: been all disproven, you know, God, rude, good grief. All right, well, I reviewed the studies because I was involved with some of my students and they insisted that I had to be wrong, that I was hurting my female patients by not adding radiation. So I I looked at the research, uh, published it in my 2017 newsletter. And basically what it comes down to is, so after looking at 22
2: randomized trials, There's no benefit in terms of survival. Okay, but let's do a really good study. Let's do a really good study so that nobody will question what goes on.
1: Published in February, 2023. Remember I told you I do follow-ups in these kinds of lectures. I do follow-ups of the new research to see whether or not maybe I missed something. Okay, breast concerns concerns surgery with or without irradiation and early breast cancer. Look at that. Look at the numbers. No radiation. Percent alive at uh, five years and 10 years.
2: No radiation, 94.2%. With radiation added, you drop five-tenths of a point. Why? Because some people die from the treatments. At the end of 10 years, survival, 80.8, no radiation therapy, 80.7, if
1: you got the radiation. You slap this study on your doctor's desk and see what happens. I'll bet you'll get thrown out of the office.
2: That's what I'd guess. Anyway, there's the data, there's nothing else. So when you put it to the test, when you do the randomized
1: control trials, what you find out is what I've tried to tell you from the beginning. They, they start with premises that are incorrect. You know, with heart disease, you start with the idea that it's the hard fibrous blockages that cause heart disease. It's not. It's the tiny pimples that pop, which we have no treatments for. When, when, if you understand the natural history of cancer, you'll understand by the time you can find it, it's already it's already expressed two thirds of its disease
2: unbeknownst to you or the doctor. Two thirds of the illness has already occurred, unbeknownst.
1: So what happens when you discover the disease? Now you become a customer. Early detection means there'll be longer times to treat you with more therapies. It's the money, Uh, yes it is.
2: Be funny, be funny if it wasn't you and your family. It's not funny. Anyway, you're welcome to share this presentation with anybody you want. And I, my email address is really easy to find. Be glad to discuss with you uh, these subjects on Chef AJ's show if she'd like to. I don't know. I do know. I do know because of mass communication, because of what we're doing right now,
1: I have a chance to talk to you personally, to share with you this information. And we're going to change the world. I, I am so excited about what's going to happen over the next four to five years
2: because the truth will get out. The truth is simple and easy to understand. The truth, the truth, ladies and gentlemen, you can't, no matter how much uh, publicity you do, no matter how many spin doctors you hire You can't change the truth. All right. So anyway, uh, Chef
1: AJ, would you like to stop for just a minute and see if there are any questions? Absolutely.
0: I will look in the chat. I know that there have been questions that were submitted, especially
1: about liver disease. I'll go on and do the liver disease thing if you want. But I just had to tell you this. I, I am... I'm, I, you know, you can imagine the frustration I have for you. Oh, yeah. You know, for you as, you as a patient, because, you know, you'll be told things like, you know, a well meaning doctor will tell you look, if you don't have this tumor cut out, you're dead meat. And if you submit to my surgery, I will cure you. That's what they tell you. They may not say it in those exact words, but that's the message that comes across to the patient. They're, they're sitting there all upset. All they can hear are, are the words of condemnation or hope. And what they hear is, you've got a problem. Yes, I got a problem. Okay, I got a tumor in my, in my liver or my colon or my breast or whatever. And you're telling me I'd be stupid to not have the most aggressive therapy possible.
2: Well, doctor, show me the evidence. Show me the research.
1: You know, you don't stand a chance unless you, know, you come well. Dr. McDougall, anyway.
0: Nancy's saying, you know, you know, she's agreeing with you, and she's saying, well, what about people that take their body parts out, not even when a tumor is found, but just because they have a gene, like, for example, the BRCA gene?
2: Yeah, that's, that's true. You can, let me tell you how you reduce your risk of lung cancer in half. You cut out one lung. Let me tell you how we reduce your risk of breast cancer in half. Do you know that there was a magazine that I read, it wasn't a
1: medical journal, but there was a magazine that I read early in my career that said because breast cancer is so common, it occurs in one in six women in their lifetime on the Western diet. It's only a disease of Western civilization. It doesn't occur when people eat a starch-based diet. This magazine suggested that just like we perform circumcisions on little male babies, days after their birth, we should remove the breast buds of female babies during the same post-birth period of time. Then you will eliminate breast cancer.
2: Excuse me. Excuse me. Is that an approach you'd want to take? Yeah. You know, if if you catch it early enough, then you can make a difference. As far as BRCA goes, BRCA,
1: uh, BRCA A and. Uh, and and one and two, these are genetic problems that set you up as having a tendency towards more breast cancer. But if you eat a starch-based diet, this is not important because uh, my understanding is disease is even if you have the genetic tendency, it's not going to affect you. And the interesting thing about treating BRCA with this
2: genetic problem is that taking the breasts off doesn't improve survival. But taking the ovaries out does.
1: And we've talked about over and over and over again how it's estrogen that promotes cancer, breast cancer. And that's why it is a disease primarily of women. Women have it 100 times more frequently than men because of estrogen. If you uh, take estrogen pills, hormone replacement therapy, you increase your risk of breast cancer. Therapies that lower estrogen slow the growth of the cancer and you live longer these therapies can be tamoxifen aromatase inhibitors or you can have your ovaries taken out when it comes to brca, removing your ovaries is what makes a difference not taking your breasts off so if that was the approach you were going to take well first thing you do
2: eat a good diet there's just so many factors in a good diet that make a difference so you eat a good diet and then what you do is you reduce your, your estrogens. First thing you do is you
1: lose that excess body fat because fat cells make estrogen. The fatter you are, the more estrogen your body contains, the less osteoporosis you'll get, but the more breast and uterine cancer you'll get because of the high estrogen levels. So you lose the weight that helps change the diet. There are, are dozens of mechanisms involved in lowering estrogens when you eat a plant food-based diet. And by the way, these are discussed in chapter five in my book, The McDougall Program for Women, which you can, well, Heather gives it away once in a while. But uh, if you wanna read it sooner than giving it away once in a while, as we do, as many of my books would give away, you could buy it on our website for like 10 bucks. Anyways, it tells you some of the mechanisms involved that lower estrogens when you eat a plant food-based diet. So, uh, yeah, in answer to your BRCA thing, you can get body parts cut out. Sure, you can. You reduce your risk of breast cancer and uterine cancer, colon
2: cancer. Let me, let me tell you, put you, another one. In, in people who have familial polyposis, this is a genetic
1: condition where you develop thousands of polyps in the colon and they have a very
2: high risk of developing colon cancer. And these people, if you divert the flow of food away from the colon, in other words, you do an
1: ileostomy so that the contents that you eat never goes into the colon, these polyps disappear. So maybe what we can do in addition to taking your breast buds off and taking one of your lungs out, and cutting, what are you? Oh, we're, we're going to take the breast buds off, and so we don't have to do that. We can only oh, the guys who take your testicles off. That would take care of your testicular cancer risk. We can also, uh, right after birth, you know, after we get done taking the breast buds off and the testicles off, we can do
2: ileostomies on every little baby, so they won't get colon cancer. I know you think I'm being silly, aren't I? I'm trying to tell you that. Look, you want to do. This easy way. You want, you want to do what's right. You want to understand this disease, these diseases. Anyway, um, the indication for heart surgery is
1: incapacitating chest pain or by good medical therapy. Good medical therapy is a change in diet. Chest pain goes away. You know, Arnish, Arnish published a 91% reduction in chest pain episodes in three weeks.
2: You won't even be able to get your heart surgery scheduled for the next three weeks. You've got time to figure this out. Anyway, you're being lied to. Look it up. Take these papers to your doctor. Ask your doctor, okay, you're making the recommendations. You are the recommender.
1: I'm a patient. You know, I haven't gone to medical school for a You know, medical training for seven to 10 years, I haven't done that, you have. Since you're the recommender, I want you to show me that you'll do me more good than harm. I, as Dr. McDougall, or you as patient, shouldn't be put in a position where we have to disprove them wrong. But we have to because they won't support what they're doing. Why won't they support what they're doing? Because it doesn't work. It causes more harm than good. Why did they do that? Because that's what they were trained to do. It was like Leonard Kim. Leonard Kim, when I was uh, in my first, probably first year in general practice in uh, at Castle Hospital in Kyoto, Hawaii. Look him up, Leonard Kim. He's probably gone. He'd be probably dead now. He was a very, very, very good surgeon at Castle Hospital. Leonard gave a lecture on mastectomies. Oh, this must have been you know, 40 years ago. And Leonard gave a lecture and he went through the research on mastectomies and whether or not prolong survival. And every single study showed the same thing. No survival thing. And I said, Leonard, I went up to him. I, you know, I, I knew him on a friendly basis. I said, look, tell me something. I said, you just, if I heard you right, you just said that cutting off a breast, no matter how aggressive you are, does not prolong survival. Did I hear you correctly? He says, yeah.
2: I said, look, I got the surgery schedule here for this afternoon, you have two mastectomy schedule. What happens to in a 93 year old woman? I said, well, what's gonna stop this, Adam Leonard? He said, a whole bunch of surgeons trained differently. Do you really wanna wait that long? Do your doctor gets up to speed on the science? You have another question now I'll Go on to the liver thing if you want. yeah, uh, the only other, other question I thought was
0: really interesting in the chat, Dr. McDougall, is when people get like cosmetic surgery on their breast, uh, she's right. asked Christina is asking, can that like you know, um aggravate underlying cancers?
1: I, I don't know. I, I, you know these uh, these breast implants have been a great controversy. I certainly would not recommend them. Uh, i I can't think of a reason that. Uh, you know, that I would want one of the female members of my family to have augmentation. Uh, I you know, as a doctor, you know, I've seen many, many female chests. It happens to be one of the privileges you have as a doctor to, you know, examine your patient, know what they look like, their problems are. I've seen thousands of women with, you know, with their chests. that's been part of my physical exam. and I can tell you, I, I have never found a breast augmentation that I would want to have any woman I know where. are they're they're like two rubber balls sitting on the chest. We have, I gotta take it back to when I was a surgical nurse, before I went to medical school, my job was working in the operating room. And I remember the, uh, I remember we we got a call over to, the woman was asleep, okay? You may not like this, it happened almost, happened 50 years ago, okay? I know it's wrong, but this is what happened. Is uh, after she was put to sleep, uh, we were all called and called into this operating room, and she had a uh, surgical sheet over the top of her, and it looked like she had two rubber balls under the sheet. And this was the first augmentation I'd ever seen. And of course, patient asleep, she was undressed.
2: And all of us in the medical field got a chance to have a a, a big laugh. You know, I know it's wrong. Anyway, I'll tell you the other side of
1: the story is in all my years of practice and I've taken care of uh, probably 40, 50 women who've been in this situation where their breasts were too big for what they thought was was functional, much less attractive. And they went through uh, breast reduction surgery. I have not met a single woman who wasn't thrilled
2: with having her breast size reduced when necessary. So... I don't see it, I don't get it. Why two rubber balls would be attractive or add to somebody's appearance. Huh. Okay, so
1: I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know that, the, the usual stuff is that these silicon implants cause autoimmune diseases. That's been to trial, there's been a lot of money at stake. I know many women who swear up and down that this is what destroyed their life, and I, had, I tend to believe them. Yeah, but anyways, it's not one of those uh, one of those arguments I'll probably get into. There are not enough people that, that I would be addressing. I would rather deal with heart disease and breast cancer and colon, yeah, that kind of stuff. You know, real common stuff that we can all benefit by getting the truth. Any other questions, Chef AJ?
0: No, people are just like uh, wanting to hear more about the liver and there's questions about liver disease.
1: All right, let's go on to liver disease. This is what I originally planned for you. And then, you know, I got this this notion that I, you know, maybe I should go over this stuff again for people. You know, maybe I should put it in such a compact form that you can insist your doctor, your friends, your relatives, your well-meaning in-laws we'll sit down and watch this segment and it take you 40 minutes to go through this.
2: And say, well, what do you think? Anyway, you kind of caught me in that kind of mood. I gave a little
1: bit of this presentation last night on the, our five o'clock session, which I hope some of you join us. It's five o'clock every Sunday night, Pacific time. Uh, Heather, Mary and I would get on for an hour. No gimmicks, no charge. Just answer your questions for an hour. Anyway, I gave this presentation last night. All right, so let's go on to the liver problem. You have access to the science, don't overlook it. Go to the National Library of Medicine, pubmed.org, tubme dorg the National Library of Medicine, and put in the citation, and then look for the DOI number. Okay, the digital object identifier number. And then come back to the Sci-Hub website and put it right in there and say open. And then the article will appear right there in front of your eyes. But don't bother copying it in that
2: form. You have to hit the save part. And then it saves as a PDF you can work with. It's all it's it's all yours. I can't imagine you wouldn't come prepared to your doctor's office when it's
1: paramount to something as important as, as your life. Anyway, let's get on. Let's talk about liver disease. All right. Uh, the most common problem we have with the liver or the biliary system is gallbladder
2: disease. 30% of Americans over the age of 60 have gallbladder disease and there's an acronym that uh, all medical students learn. Uh, let's, let get back here. Uh,
1: all medical students learn. And uh, that is who's most likely to have gallbladder disease. And the acronym is the six Fs. I was taught it as four Fs, but it's up to six now. The six Fs, female, fair, fat, fertile, 40, and flatulent. <laughs> then you're looking at an, a chance of having gallbladder disease probably up to 50%. But most of these people, they never had any pain. They never had any trouble. From them. they just had these silent gallstones, asymptomatic gallstones, and maybe a little inflammation of the gallbladder. That's that's right. Uh, typical symptoms: uh, you get pain in the right upper quadrant that radiates to the scapula. You know the what is this clavicle? Oh, no, not the clavicle. Scapula. That that bone back there in the in the back. It radiates in that area most of the time, up to the right shoulder blade. It's the gallbladder's on the right side. It's, you know, that's where the liver sits. And, uh, you know, pain lasts for 15 minutes to several hours. And it's really, really severe. Cause you to pay attention to what's going on. And the way you diagnose uh, gallstones is by doing an ultrasound, which it doesn't cost you any radiation. It's just a, a matter of looking. But I have to warn you, if you look, you find. And if you find, you might be obligated to treat, so be careful what you ask for. Because if they're gonna look in your abdomen both an ultrasound, 30% of the time, half the time, they'll find gallstones. They'll find something that will trouble you and may be encouraged to do something about, which is to have those gallstones removed, which I'm gonna encourage you not to do. The risk of developing serious problems and you have gallbladder disease is rare. One to 2% of the people, and uh, half a million gallbladders are removed every year in the United States. It's a $5 billion a year business, cost between three and $6,000 of surgery. Another interesting thing from my career is that when we first started taking out gallbladders, we would do a nine inch incision under the right rib cage. And I'd get on one retractor and pull in one direction, another student get on another direct, retractor and pull in another direction. And then the surgeon would get down there with the scissors and locate the locate this common bile duct. Make sure you didn't cut the common bile duct. Oh, man, you make sure you got just the duct that went to the gallbladder because you kill the patient if you cut the wrong duct. Anyway, we'd, we'd take out the gallbladder and the gallstones
2: and throw it in the waste basket. Go on. Well, then we had laparoscopy discovered. Or you didn't make a nine inch
1: incision. You just made a couple little pokes. You know, you're up and walking around within hours. And they just went through with a couple of tubes and they took the gallbladder out that way. And boy, oh boy, the incidence of gallbladder surgery went up, doubled overnight. Why? Because patients said, well, it ain't no big deal. It isn't as big deal as it
2: was before. And doctors found another way to make a quick buck. 90% of gallstones are made of cholesterol. Where does cholesterol come from? Cholesterol is only from animals.
1: No plant or plant food contains significant amounts of cholesterol to ever trouble anybody. Animals. And we're animal. We are an animal. And so therefore, we make cholesterol. We make all the cholesterol we need.
2: It's made from plant sterols. Plant sterols are converted into cholesterol. And then cholesterol is converted into vitamin D, sex hormones, and bile acids. Okay, so uh, the way you get extra cholesterol more than you
1: possibly could need or make is you eat animals. When you eat animals, we run into a problem. And that problem is, is your liver only has a limited capacity to excrete cholesterol. And that capacity matches your uh, amount you produce. It can get rid of about 500 milligrams of cholesterol a day through the bile, into the ball, and out into the toilet. But that's it, about 500 milligrams a day. Say you eat an extra 500 milligrams. What's it gonna do with the extra
2: 500 milligrams? Your liver can't get rid of it. Now, if you were a dog or cat, that would be no problem because
1: Dogs and cats, as omnivores and carnivores, all they do is they just crank up their liver metabolism. They excrete all that cholesterol. You never never cause gallstones or atherosclerosis or cholesterol deposits ever in these animals because their livers are different. They're designed to handle the cholesterol. So so what do you conclude? What, What is your conclusion? I know, I know, I know. You say we were born with the wrong kind of liver.
2: Or you could say, well, you should eat like a dog and a cat. That's the other conclusion. Anyway, gallstones are made of cholesterol.
1: Every doctor knows that uh, you get gallstones from supersaturation of the bile with cholesterol. It becomes overconcentrated, supersaturated
2: with cholesterol, and it precipitates into cholesterol gallstones. That's the way you get them. All right, but as I mentioned. You don't know they're asymptomatic in most people.
1: All right. So let's see. Supersaturated bile covered that. Oh, one of the ways you can super saturate your bile with cholesterol and have more gallstones is to switch from an animal fat diet to a vegetable fat diet. In other words, if you switch from, you know, fat from pigs and cows to fat from corn, right? you're going to have more gallbladder disease. These polyunsaturated fats are toxic toxic. You know, in our last hour's discussion, you want to sludge the blood, you add vegetable oil. It sludges the blood more severely and longer than animal fat does. You want to promote cancer, add vegetable oil to the,
2: to the subject's diet. You'll really get cancer growing. These vegetables are toxic. Anyway, vegetarians have far fewer incidence of gallbladder diseases than typical America does.
1: So you eat the cholesterol. Your liver has a limited capacity. That's the picture over there you're looking at. It has a limited capacity to get rid of the cholesterol, so it ends up to being deposited all over the body, including the gallstones. All right. So how do we know this is a disease of eating the Western diet? Well, we can look at populations that have recently changed their diet, like, for example, the Tahamari uh, Native Americans. They're called Tahamari Indians, but I know that's not the right terminology these days, uh, Tahamari Native Indians. There was a group called the uh, Pimas, which ended up in reservations outside of uh, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, Tucson, Arizona, right around that area, Arizona. They, they lived on a, a reservation and, and what happened is the water supply of that reservation was cut off. And so the federal government who felt like they couldn't leave these poor Native Americans to starve to death because they couldn't grow crops anymore, they give them free food. So they gave them the American diet. And so you have a population of Pimas living in uh, Arizona who have a higher incidence of American diseases than any other population I can think of
2: right now. Well, I, I could probably talk about the Inuit Eskimo or, or the Native Americans from the East Coast, but let's just pick,
1: pick out the Pimians for it. Pima Indians for a while. All right, uh, Pima Indians, 73% of the women over the age of 25 are found to have gallstones. However, a genetic identical counterpart are the Tahamari Indians who live in the Copper Canyon in northwestern Mexico, in the Copper Canyon. These are the Taha Amari Indians. They stayed on their native diet, which happened to be
2: changed by the... By, by the uh, but by the things that happened on the reservation, uh, they stayed with the
1: corn and rice and beans. The Tahamaris did, and the Pimas didn't. They ate the Western diet provided to them all courtesy of the U.S. government. Anyway, you see what happened to the uh, to the incidence of gallbladder diseases. The age first chart. See how it de- increases up to eighty percent of them have gallbladder disease. Well, look at what happened to the cholesterol levels when they switched the Taha to the Pima Indians diet. In other words, they switched them from beans and corn and squash to pork chops. You see the dramatic increase in cholesterol, which goes along with the increase in gallbladder disease. This is a population of people where somewhere around 70% of them are obese and have
2: diabetes. Well, you can say, well, you know, they're genetically less strong. I don't know how you'd say it'd be nice. No, that's
1: not. They haven't had time to be naturally selected, as people eating the Western diet have. You get the weak ones gone. So yeah, there's some natural selection that went on. Anyway, to do this experiment, they fed them 900 milligrams of cholesterol, and their cholesterol levels increased from 113 to 147 milligrams per deciliter
2: when you fed that richer diet of Tom marines. All right, so one other thing I got to talk to you about gallbladder disease is that
1: um, anytime you lose weight, you increase your chances of having gallbladder attacks. So if you have your teeth wired together, you go through a bariatric surgery. In fact, with bariatric surgery, like gastric bypass, 30% of the people who want to go to the
2: surgery within a year or a year and a half have gallbladder problems. Low-carb diets, same thing. Anything that
1: causes weight loss uh, will increase the chances of you having gallstones discovered and having gallbladder attacks. There's only one way I believe you can lose weight and not have this happen, and that's if you lose the weight by eating a starch-based diet with fruits and vegetables. Now, I've seen, I've seen a few, but not many in my career, of people who have developed gallbladder problems shortly after they changed the diet. Certainly not the number expected, like 30% that you see after, after uh, bariatric surgery. You know, we're talking about probably four people in 12,000. Why? Because you're, you're feeding a diet that contains no cholesterol. I mean, you, you, you're, you're setting up everything to heal. So I wouldn't let this increased risk of having a gallbladder or gallstones,
2: gallbladder attack, increased risk of having this happen to you if you lose weight. You just got to lose weight by the right means. you would be fine. All right, Um, the problem with having your gallbladder removed is you've removed a necessary organ.
1: The gallbladder has a purpose, just like the appendix does, and so does every other uh, part of the human body. They have purposes. And the purpose of the gallbladder is to store bile acids between meals. The liver makes bile acid, and it also filters a whole bunch of stuff out of the bloodstream and the tissues. And uh, it makes these bile acids, which are for the
2: purpose of digesting fat, vegetable fat, animal fat. So the more fat you eat, the more bile acids you make.
1: These bile acids are made continuously throughout 24 hours, okay? They're made all day long, but they're not needed except when you eat a fatty meal. So between meals, So you only eat two, three, four times a day. Between meals, the bile has to go someplace. And where it goes is into this storage sac called the gallbladder. And then what happens when you eat the sphincter that uh, connects the cystic duct with the small intestine called Odie, his name is Odie, that's the sphincter's name. He relaxes and the gallbladder contracts and you squirt this bile on your fatty meal. Well, what happens when you don't have a place for storing
2: between meals? You get a constant drip of bile acids into your intestine all day long. You have no place to store it, and plus, you don't have the components that neutralize bile acids, which are plant
1: parts, you know, plant fibers, will grab a hold of bile acids and deactivate them. So what you have is you have this constant drip of bile acids throughout your small intestine and into your large intestine, which is the reason why people
2: post gallbladder disease have diarrhea. is because the bile acids are so irritating they give horrible diarrhea. It's also the reason you have a higher risk of right-sided colon cancer. All
1: right, right-sided colon cancer. You see the right side there? It's because if you have this drip, 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 drip of bile acids, which are irritating, all right, so you go on a low-fat diet, the diarrhea stops. And basically every case. I have people who have 20, 20 watery stools a day. Within two, a day and a half, they're gone. They're, they're, they are down to relatively formed stools a couple times a day just by taking the fats and oils out of the diet. This was published, by
2: the way, by Andreessen in the 1970s in the Journal Gut. Not new. Ignored, but not new. All right. So anyway, uh, let's get into another situation
1: that you may be confronted with, and that's finding gallstones that are asymptomatic. Asymptomatic gallstones. In other words, they don't cause any symptoms at all. It's just there. Uh, here, for example, if you get a chest x-ray or you know some abdominal ultrasound or See those gallstones? You never knew they had those.
2: They're never bothering you. They're asymptomatic, but they're there. What are you gonna do about it? Well, you might be encouraged to have them surgically removed. All right. But when studies are done, taking two courses of action. One
1: is to immediately treat the gallstones with surgery when you find them. The other is to wait until you have a problem. And at most, only 20% of people have problems, but at least 80% that never were bothered by their gallstones. If you wait until you have problems, then you have the surgery done. When you look at the outcome, you find the
2: outcome is just as good or better by waiting. Immediate therapy results in more death and harm than waiting. Don't treat your gallstones. Leave them
1: alone. I remember one of the most enjoyable things in my anatomy class in medical school was when we found on one of our cadavers gallstones.
2: Everybody had to come over and see him. Look, gallstones, Mabel has gallstones. Give the medical students a little entertainment. Leave your gallstones in place. All right, Uh, real popular these
1: days, uh, fatty infiltration of the liver, that's what we used to call it. It's called uh, uh, hepatic steatosis, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. In other words, if you're a non-drinker and your liver gets sick, inflamed, how do you tell that? Well, you might have some pain over the liver area, which is in the right upper side. Uh, You might get some blood tests done and find elevation of liver enzymes. That's another way to do it. You could also do an ultrasound. Certain types of uh, x-ray procedures might show it. What you see is fat infiltrating the liver. Now, what do you think causes the liver to become infiltrated with fat? how about what causes your buttocks to become infiltrated with
2: fat how about your abdomen how about your thighs how about your skin so i a high fat diet folks yeah they, they say this inflammation can result in such severe inflammation it causes cirrhosis in the liver they reverse this easily change your diet but don't fall into the recommendations to switch to good fats.
1: This whole idea of don't eat bad fats, but eat good fats is toxic. And you know, I've told you these good fats, they increase the risk of cancer, the fat you use the fat you wear,
2: they sludge the blood seriously, and uh, cause more gallstones. Don't buy into the good fat idea. You'll,
1: anyway, here, here's, here's your randomized trial using good fats and they showed no benefit. Good fats don't help when it comes to fatty infiltration of in the liver. You just are infiltrated with good fats. The fat you eat is the fat you wear. And there's nothing more attractive about wearing animal fat in your liver, your thighs, your
2: buttocks, or abdomen than it would be to wear vegetable fat. They're both disgusting, folks. They're both deadly. Non-fat is where you want to go. Low-fat. It's doesn't stay as non-fat a little bit of fat in all the foods, all that you'll ever need. All right, liver patients. And
1: you know, I, again, as a medical doctor, a board-certified internist, I've had a chance to take care of
2: people with failing livers, most of them alcoholics. And uh, what you have to deal with is you have to deal with people, getting these people
1: healthy as you can. Very lost, 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 lost a good share of the liver. By the way, the liver is the most regenerative organ in the body. It will. Just leave a little bit of it left and it tries to grow back. It has that ability, even if you, you drank yourself half to death, or you've eaten a fatty, filtrating diet, it'll heal. Tremendous ability to heal, that liver is. But you gotta treat it properly. And what you have to feed it is a diet that least taxes the liver. And that's a low fat, and I just told you why, and a low protein diet. Because some of the initial metabolism of protein, you know, the stuff they sell you in meat and chicken and beef and protein supplement, the the initial stop from the gut is the liver. And the liver's got to break down this protein into what we call blood urea
2: nitrogen or BUN. You'll find it on your lab tests, BUN. And when you eat the Western diet, your BUNs are elevated. And if it becomes high enough the BUN, you go into a coma.
1: And if you lower the protein intake in the diet by getting the high protein foods out of the diet, feeding into starch-based diet, maybe add a little bit of table sugar to it. These people in hepatic coma, they wake up. And when you feed equal amounts of vegetable versus
2: animal protein, they get better with the vegetable protein, not with the animal protein. It's different. There's the research. Look it up. All right, a couple other
1: things that I'd like to talk to you about. One is uh, uh, another desti- destination for the fat you eat and the fat you wear is a little fatty tumor. is called lipomas. Here's what the lipoma looks like. You know, just the way just the way some people do, uh, deposit fat in this particular architecture. And these fatty
2: tumors, they go away how do you think you make them go away? Come on now. guess, folks. You lose the fat. How do you lose the
1: fat? Well, you know, you could go into a prisoner of war camp, get your teeth, your teeth wire together. You go on a low carb diet. You can have, create malabsorption through bariatric surgery. Yeah, there are lots of ways. To, oh, there's only one way to lose weight and be healthy. Oh, what do we do? How do we lose weight and be healthy? Oh, we eat a diet that healthy, trim people have always eaten. And that's a starch-based diet. You know that. All right. Uh, another condition that you might be worried about is cellulite. They've got special formulas and supplements and exercises and so on to take care of cellulite. Cellulite's just the way fat is stored in certain parts of the body,
2: like the buttocks and thigh. Mm, the architecture of your fatty tissues is... Uh, is. Uh, it is dominated by fibrous cords that
1: are between the skin and the underlying connective tissue. And these cords are fibrous and they won't, they won't stretch. And as you fill the fatty tissue with fat, what happens is, is parts of the fat that are adjacent to the cords, they expand into this
2: lumpy mattress that you're wearing on your buttocks and thighs. That's cellulite. How do you get rid of cellulite? Same treatment. Okay. Okay. Another condition you might be concerned about is the
1: fat you eat, the fat you wear, acne. Acne does not occur in populations of people who eat a starch-based diet. That doesn't happen. Kids go through their teenage years uh, without oily skin, without pimples, without scars,
2: et cetera. They just change, You know, you got the pimples, you got the grease on your skin. It takes about a month to get them to calm down. Uh,
1: this is a research paper I ran across when I was looking for all the stuff that was done in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. When they used low-fat diets, starch-based diets, as opposed to a bunch of drugs, thinking that they would get you well. Some of you have cholesterol deposits in your skin and in your tendons.
2: In the eye, they're called xanthalasma. And in your tendons, they're called xantholomas. What do you do about it? Well, you look up the Journal of Clinical Nutrition 1952, volume
1: one, page 52, and how do you do that? you go to the National Library of Medicine, you look up this particular reference and you find the DOI number and then you go to Sci-Hub and you plug it in and there's the paper for you. They disappear when you eat a low-fat,
2: healthy, non-cholesterol diet. Oh yeah, you lots of surgeons that will operate on them for you. Sure. All right. So that's probably more than I wanted to tell you, today, Chef AJ,
1: Remember, remember, you're not helpless. The information is available for you and your family. You know, do as much work as you would uh, before buying a new car or a new refrigerator. You know, you put days and weeks into the study before you buy the right one. Look it up. Read it.
2: Challenge the recommenders. Doctor, are you telling me the whole story? You'll have some fun. I always do. All right, Jeff, AJ, we're done here, probably. Nice. Thank you, Dr. McDougal.
1: Uh, well, do, you know, do you
0: want to stop? stop screen share? You can keep it up if you like, but I
1: have some questions. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. I want you to notice, as you were kind enough to say, is that every Sunday night, Pacific time, 5 o'clock, all over the world, and we have listeners all over the world, Mary and I and Heather get on for an hour of discussion and we talk about things that are important. They usually let me go for a few minutes and do a monologue and then we answer all your questions free, no gimmicks. We're going to encourage you to come to the 12 day program. What do you expect? That's the best way for you to get better. Let us take care of you. You know, what's your health worth, huh? You know, you're going to buy a wardrobe that costs more than it costs you to come to the 12 day program. You might as well just buy a new wardrobe once. I bet some of you have clods and stuff with a bunch of different sizes. You don't have to do that anymore once you learn a starch-based diet. The full potential of your body and your mind is expressed when it's properly nourished. And it's nourished by the diet that 99.9999% of the people who ever walked this earth have consumed. These are starch-based diets like rice in
2: Asia and corn in Central America and Mexico, and potatoes in South America, and guess what?
1: Guess what you eat in the bread basket of the world? You think it's called the pork chop basket of the world? No, it's called the bread basket of the world, because that's what you're supposed to be eating, is bread, and corn, and potatoes, and rice. That should be 90% of your diet, and for most of us, it's got to be 100%, because that little temptation just drives us back into into some very unhealthy ways. So it's best to do it 100%. But you don't have to. You get what you
2: put into it. Yeah, I'll stop this old thing here. I've got this army I'm trying to build, AJ, you know.
1: I'm trying to build this whole army to help me change the world by just, to, just releasing the truth. And I ask you to insist that you're told the truth. I know how you feel. You know, your doctors are intimidating. You walk into a doctor's office, it's you know, their staff, their room, their instruments, they're in control. You don't know how to, you don't know how to get you know half, half of the discussion going in your direction. You've got to prepare. You've got to do some work. You've got to do the research. You know, you, you have to go in with the attitude that you're part of this conversation too. Anyway. Uh, there are lots of things you do to become a good
2: consumer. Right now, you're not. Right now, they're just walking all over the top of you. Great, are them. Wait. Oh, you know that's what I, that's my attitude. Fire them. Get rid of them. There are lots of doctors out there.
1: They're dime a dozen. And, and pretty soon, if we get people healthy, they'll be they'll be um, twelve thousand per dime. We we'll have them driving taxicabs, as far as I'm concerned. Except, let me tell you, there's some, there's some medical treatments that are crucial. I mean, you, you don't
2: get a stake stuck in your heart and leave it there. You know, the intervention could save your life. So, you know, take advantage
1: of things that are worthwhile. But if you have chronic illness, you're chronically overweight, or chronically sick,
2: they're not helping you. Start looking other places. It's the food. Ready for a few
0: liver-related questions, Dr. McDougall? Oh, I'm ready. Great, thank you. The first one is from Kathy. And Kathy, and, and maybe you can mention if the 12-day program would be suitable for a condition that she has. And she is a long-time vegan. She says, can you please ask Dr. McDougall if fibrosis can be improved? And if so, how I have
1: stage three. Yeah, you know, fibrosis means scar. Okay, so this is dead tissue. It's never gonna come back. But if it's in the liver, I told you the liver has a tremendous regenerative capacity. So you, you, know, you can just end up with a tiny bit of liver left, functioning cells, and it will regrow. But the scar tissue is never gonna go away. And if you keep doing the things that gave you the scar tissue, you're gonna continue to lay down more scar tissue. What causes the inflammation in your liver? Probably it's an autoimmune disease uh, the, the body's attacking the, the the liver. and the reason it's attacking the liver is the body's confused. And the reason it's confused is because you're eating livers. You're eating foreign livers. Uh, AJ, you know what what, they, what do they call foreign livers? what, is, what do they call it? what? I, I
2: don't know.
0: I don't know what they call foreign livers. It's a meat.
1: What, what, what are for, what are livers It's the liver called? In a, a pate. Oh, a foie gras? Foie gras You're eating livers from ducks and cows and pigs, and your body gets confused because it says, oh, oh, this is foreign. So it makes antibodies to cow and pig livers. But you've got a liver too that's pretty similar, and so it gets confused because of the other unhealthy things you've got from the Western diet it starts attacking yourself. It's autoimmune disease, the body attacks itself.
2: So you can stop this inflammation, I believe. And you do it by eating strictly a starch-based diet. You know, that's what you do. And uh, you should get better. But you, gotta, you really gotta take this serious.
1: When it comes to autoimmune diseases, you can't just have a little bit. It's like uh, being allergic to penicillin and going into the dentist's office and getting a little shot of penicillin. You end up a little dead. You know, it just takes a little bit of these offending foods to get you in trouble. But remember, a little bit, like, like a, you know, a, a drop of food may contain,
2: like, you know, 50 million cells. That's a lot in a little bit. So you got to get in trouble. You've got to be careful. You even have to read the ingredients in your packages. Or better, yeah, just get them in the original packages. They're called potatoes. That's way the deal.
0: Nice. Here's a a question about gallbladder. And this is from uh, Crystal. I had my gallbladder removed some time ago and food goes right through me. What can I do to help with that? And other people are saying, it's like, if you have your gallbladder
1: out, are you basically screwed? Is this a diarrhea she has after? Was this diarrhea that you said?
0: Well, she's saying it goes right through her. So I I guess let's let's call that
1: diarrhea. Yeah. Okay. You go on a low fat diet. The low fat diet, remember, bile acids are made as a consequence of the fat you eat. So if you eat low fat, you make few bile acids. All right. You don't have a storage sac anymore. So these bile acids go from the liver directly into the small intestine, into the large intestine. You've got a constant flow of bile acids in the large intestine. So just by eating a low fat diet, which happens to have plant substances that complex bile acids and deactivate them, the diarrhea goes away. Andreessen published this in the early 70s in the journal Got. Look it up. He took people who had a, a, a tremendous problem with diarrhea. They had 20 watery stools a day and he put them on a low-fat diet and within 72 hours, most of them were having formed stools, two or three a day, down from 20 watery stools a day. Okay, so I have people who have special things come up in their life, and maybe they don't have full control of their diet under circumstances like meetings or, or trips or flying on airplanes, and they're scared to death they're going to have diarrhea sitting in first class on the airplane, It'd be a big deal, wouldn't it? So what I do is I give them a bile acid sequestering agent, which your doctor prescribes, non toxic, bile acid sequestering agent. They're called cholestid and Questran. And what they do, we used to use them to treat cholesterol because remember I told you that uh, bile acids are made from cholesterol. So if you suck the bile acids out of the system, you suck the cholesterol out of the tissues. It's a good treatment. Now, of course, we have statins. We don't have to get into that, but it's money. Anyway, uh, these bile acid sequestering agents like Questran or Cholestid, I have them take them before the uh, impending event. You know, the flight, the meeting, the vacation. And it stops It stops the diarrhea. It's for the reasons I told you. It, it works extremely effectively. But the side effect listed on these bioacids, sequestering agents is constipation. So you'll be able to fix it. Just get your doctor to write a right prescription for you for or cholesterol. Your
2: doctor will do it. It is no strain at all to do that. Great. Thank you. This is from... Don't know who it's
0: from, but the question is, if someone has autoimmune hepatitis, at what AST-ALT liver enzyme would you recommend medications? The levels are decreasing on a mostly raw whole food plant-based diet, but they're still very high.
1: Well, I don't quite understand the question, but if you're monitoring your liver function tests, which is what they're doing, and they're still elevated, well, you know, I'd still try to improve the diet. I, th- I think, in, you know, if you have any question about whether you can get well, this is the, these are the stages of treatment that I ask you to go through. They're described in my May 2014 newsletter. And you can work this out. It costs you nothing, no adverse effects, totally under your control. Is you first start at the McDougall diet, which is uh, a diet based on starch, with the addition of fruits and vegetables, you then go on to a gluten-free approach and i usually combine the two i start people out who have rheumatoid arthritis etc on the basic medical diet without wheat barley and rye and then what i do is i have them go on to the elimination diet which is the least likely foods to cause that kind of reaction that's in my may 2014 newsletter if you're not better after all this effort and you've sincerely done it then the last step the last thing you can do that i think you should try before you give up is to go see Alan Goldhammer at True North. That's the ultimate, in the elimination diet. That's the ultimate
2: low cholesterol, low fat. All you get is water. If you don't get better on just water, then it's probably not the food. But that, those
1: are, you know, very inexpensive, very safe way of doing things. You know, in most cases, unless you're bleeding to death,
2: it's, it's better to
1: wait and think about it. It's better to go in well-prepared as to know what you're going to do and why. Because you have to live with the consequences of your decisions. Your doctor doesn't have to live with them. You have to live with the, you know, the absence of a colon or, or the absence of a breast or the inability to ejaculate because you had your prostate removed. you got to live with this, not your doctor. I mean, good grief. If I, you know, really, I'm 76 years old. If I was told I had prostate
2: cancer, and by the way, by biopsy in a man my age, 76 years old, eating the Western diet,
1: by biopsy, random biopsy, there's over a 90% chance that you're going to find
2: cells in my prostate, if I were to eat the Western diet, that indicate I have prostate cancer. But it's really not a prostate cancer will ever kill you. To transfer
1: into the kind of cancer that escapes the prostate and moves to your brain and your
2: liver and your lungs, etc., you gotta introduce the Western diet. And, and then it goes from a, uh, an, an,
1: a rather benign situation to something that could and will
2: kill you. So it's never too late to stop eating that. Even you know, even 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 cancers undergo regression. Well, even people who have cancer all over their body, they've been shown to go through spontaneous regression. How often? Oh, let's see, twenty-two percent of the time. I, I didn't. I just. I just said over a period of six years. of the
1: breast cancers that are developing, disappear spontaneously.
2: Challenge your doctor with that statement and let me prove it to be true. See, so if you're busily looking for problems, you're gonna find them. This is a study done on mammograms. They set it
1: up. They they did interval mammograms uh, six years apart. And they took, Big group of women, divided them into of women who got mammograms done every year or two compared to women who got them never, except during the study. And what you suspect is that women who are getting, every one or two years, uh, getting mammograms done and having the tumors taken out, you'd expect the number of tumors to be the same in both groups. But you don't find that. What you find is those who were busily looking for the cancers, 22% of the cancers disappeared,
2: went through spontaneous regression. You were cured. (laughs) I don't talk about that much today. Well, it's money, it's the food. Someday I'm just going to do a recording, AJ. I'm just going to do a quick recording. You can play it over and over again. I'm just going to sit here and go, it's the food. <laughs> it's the food. Yeah. Oh, that doctor. Oh, yes.
1: He just had like two statements he made over and over again.
0: Oh, well. That's funny. That'll be the answer to every question from now on. So here's a question from Erin. And she wants to know if CBD gummies
1: are toxic to the liver. I don't know that. I doubt it, but I don't know that. I'd have to look it up. You know how to look it up? Go to the National Library of Medicine. www.pubmed.org. Look it up and then go to a Sci-Hub
2: and get the paper and read it and take it to your doctor. Come on, you guys, help me.
1: I don't want you to believe me. I really don't. I want you to understand me. If you don't understand me, then I don't understand my subject. You know, that's my problem. I've got to make myself understandable. But you've got to do half the work. You've got to take the the knowledge that I've given you and the resources I've provided for you, and you have to become knowledgeable. You have to save yourself and your spouses and your children your parents. Unless you want to come to the 12-day program, then I'll save them for you. That's one of the things I do, AJ, is I, you've probably known this of me, to get involved with patients and their other doctors and make their other doctors explain what they're saying to the patient.
2: Have you ever known me to do that, AJ? No. Okay. You never heard about me getting involved with people who have terrible trouble and me going to the oh, doctor?
1: Oh, yeah, doctor?
0: absolutely. Oh, sorry. I misheard the question. Absolutely. Are you,
1: are you with their private doctor? You sure do. That's, you have- what you do. That's what you do for your patients. Absolutely. I do that for my patients. My patients are are special, and I don't let them be abused. You know, any diet, and I, believe me, I, I can't, you've got to run the risk of losing the doctor, though. You know, I had a fellow about uh, eight months ago who uh, followed our diet, so to speak, and had an episode of chest pain, so to speak, and got into a traditional hospital in Los Angeles, And the doctor insisted that he was gonna die if he didn't submit to the surgery. I said, show me the studies. I said, this is what the patient has. Show me the research. Just show me a study that shows that you're gonna prolong his survival by doing the recommended
2: heart surgery. One study, I'll just go for one study. He couldn't do it. What he eventually ended up doing was kicking the patient out of the hospital which I thought was the ultimate in in not being a doctor. I
1: mean, your job is to take care of these people. And they're having lots of problems and lots of difficult decisions to make. And to not offer them emotional and mental support is just a
2: complete failure in your, your responsibilities as a physician. These are your patients. You have a duty. You have a duty. And I'd be glad to discuss any of these subjects with you On Chef AJ's show,
1: if you have any question about what I'm saying, bring in your experts.
2: I'll just do something that probably they haven't been involved with very often. I'll I'll bring in the science. I'm not going to bring in yesterday's golf score or how the stock market market
1: stock market is, is doing. I don't know that. I just I have no interest in either one of those subjects, but I can tell you what the
2: science says. I love the science. Yeah. Okay, Chef AJ, let's quit. All right, Doctor McDougal, that would be great. Thank you so much. So you're taking
0: July off? We all are, and uh, you'll be back sure. hopefully in August with another great yeah. show.
1: Yeah, I, I, I have July off tonight. We well, have a lot.
0: No, you don't have it off in your life. You're, you're running a 12 day program. It's just that in July we're going to be. Um, I'm going to be in Mexico. There's, when... no,
1: there's going to be no 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 McDougal Monday,
0: right? Right. No. Well, it will. It just won't be airing live that day. So we're we're going to see you again in August. So you you have any idea what you might want to what you haven't talked about yet?
1: Uh, I'll probably go back on diabetes again. You know, just like today, I went on heart disease and cancer just as a review to show you that you're being lied to. I uh, will go through the diabetic pills and treatments to show you again you're being lied to. You can't call it anything else. You're just plain and simple being lied to. And I can prove it. You know, in, in a what do they say? I can prove it in a minute. Just give me a device. a phone will do. Okay? Or, or my computer. Just give me a device and I'll go to the National Library of Medicine. And then I'll go to Sci-Hub. And I'll put those papers on your desk. And I will show you that you need to rethink things. You know, maybe you've been lied to, too. I think that's the problem is is, uh, the the lies are so extensive. Of course, there's a tremendous amount of money from the food and drug companies behind it and the device companies. The lies are so pervasive that my colleagues don't know the difference. They take the attitude, well, everybody's doing it. It's got to be right. Everybody's doing it. And I know that the chances of me being sued or not depended upon whether I'm practicing the community standard of practice. If I kill you, just like the guy or girl down the street, I'm okay, I don't get sued. But if I do something
2: different, like feed you potatoes and broccoli to get well, even though you get well, that scares a lot of my colleagues is to do the right thing because they're afraid of being
1: criticized for being sued. And they, they should be, unless they prepare themselves. Uh, I may be uh, speaking, you know, too aggressively, too egotistically right now, but you know, I I really look forward to the challenge. Uh, I may be wrong. I may end up losing my career by being challenging because it's not not just always who's right, it's who's got the most money.
2: But I'm willing to take that risk. And the reason I'm willing to take that risk is because I'm a doctor. Well, we appreciate you, Dr. McDougall. And people are asking if
0: one time Mary will come back again because they also
1: enjoy seeing her. That's what we'll do. So let show do the show. Well, in the meantime, every Sunday night, five o'clock Pacific time on YouTube, Mary's there with me. We'll we'll get things answered. That's great. So you have a nice summer uh we'll have one just, just
0: gonna... one month off one month off i'll i'll, I'll still be doing the show but you know there because we started doing regular programming in january with 28 guests all the people waiting for a one slot have not been able to come on so we're going to get them in in july and then august we'll go back to our regular programming
2: well good in the meantime in the meantime uh, you know I, I wish you a good summer and i
1: wish you that you get the health and appearances you deserve because you deserve <laughs> To look good, feel good, and function well. You it's know, I don't know,
0: I don't know if I told you this, but when you were on with Dr. Grimm last week, people really liked that format of you and another doctor having a conversation. So think about doing that on my channel. If there's other doctors you'd like to converse with, people really well, thought you were a great interviewer and it was really engaging, you know, going back
1: and forth with someone like that. And I was polite. Yes, you were. I was <laughs> professional you know you can plan on anybody out there that wants to take another point of view as long as you give me the same courtesy of being polite and professional, I'd be glad to talk any of these subjects over with you. why? because it's for the patient's benefit. And besides that, if I'm wrong, I'd like to be I'd like to be corrected. I don't need to I don't need to exaggerate. you know the truth is is stranger than fiction. you know how it goes. so uh any, anytime you find you know you're you go and you share this stuff with your private doctor or friend or in law or whatever. And they say, Oh, Dr. McDougall's a bunch of, them. well, you say, well, would you like to tell him that? Would you like, would you like, in a polite way, would you like to tell him that I can get you a position on a chef AJ show and he can discuss heart disease and colon cancer and breast cancer. And a lot of things with you, you think you're so darn smart about, but you better prepare yourself. You know, this is one of the problems I've run into with a, uh, with these kinds of conversations is uh, my colleagues in a challenging manner will come in unprepared and they really don't expect that I won't do that. I'll come in prepared. And uh, they're in for an interesting hour if they didn't get prepared. Even if they spent a lifetime becoming an expert in cardiology and oncology,
2: I will be prepared. And uh, hopefully I'm in a position to admit that when I'm wrong. Hopefully. Well, great. Thanks,
0: Dr. McDougall. All right.
2: All right. Talk to you later, Chef AJ group. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow at 9.30 a.m. when Elizabeth Manser will be celebrating her 73rd birthday, making some incredible recipes. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.